The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and let's open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're continuing our study in the last letter of the Baptist acrostic. And I'd talk, like to talk a little bit more about the pastor's office this evening. Uh, I still have one more message on the pastor's office, and then uh, we'll finish the Living for Jesus series. After all these many months, we will finish with a, with a message on the deacons. And on that night, which comes up in a couple of weeks, we will have a deacon ordination. So we're talking about the pastor again tonight, and in most churches, as the pastor goes, so goes the church. Often a pastor is judged by the numbers of people that attend the church, and so if there aren't very many people that attend the church, does that mean that the pastor is not important? Well, the answer to that, I hope you would say, is no, because some of the godliest and most effective men have pastored churches that aren't very large, and they've preached to small numbers of people. We cherish the writings of men like uh, John Bunyan, who went for long periods of time without a place to meet. Small numbers were preached to wherever they could. And John Bunyan spent 13 years in jail for preaching to 20 people without the king's permission. So most pastors today, uh, pastor churches, of less than 80 people, that's, that's pretty much the average across the country, 80 or less people, and successful ministries then cannot be judged on the numbers of people that attend a church. Now churches are tremendously helped or tremendously harmed depending upon the person that they choose to be their pastor. And then for this reason we have these qualifications that are given in the scriptures and uh, these are qualifications that set the man apart from the ordinary. And it's not that these qualifications should be extraordinary for any Christian, but we find in the list things that all of us should, uh, should endeavor to do in our Christian lives. And even for you ladies, as I mentioned last week, when you find some qualifications here that are gender-specific, you can find a counterpart to that that will make you a better Christian if you try to live in that way. And so in all of these things, uh, if we do them, the church will fare well. And that's the way that the Bible works, that every act of obedience produces the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And so if we follow the word, the church is always going to be where it should be. So let's read the list again, First Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1. First uh, Timothy 3, verse 1, it says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest, being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, 
lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Our subject this evening is the pastor and his qualifications. This is part four of our outline, which is the personal character of the pastor. Now, we've covered most of this, and we will finish it tonight. Uh, These are the headings that we have discussed thus far, that the pastor must be blameless. He must be a a one-woman man. He must be temperate, gentlemanly, didactic. And in case you've forgotten what didactic means, that's a word that's uh, the same word that's translated 30 times in the New Testament as doctrine. It means instructive. Doctrine means teaching. So a didactic person would be one who is able to teach or apt to teach, as this verse says. This is the only one in this list of qualifications that's not a moral qualification. And yet we learn that it is tied to the pastor's morality because he must live what he teaches. He can't be a hypocritical person. As soon as people find out that he is a hypocrite, then they shut their ears to the teaching. And so a pastor must be very careful to watch himself to make sure that his private life is the same as his public persona. Then we also looked at this this phrase, apt to teach from a more common angle, and that is, or from a common interpretation, and that is that he must be ready to give an answer. To those who need to know, he needs to be able to give an answer from the Scriptures about things that people need to know about the Lord. He needs to be able to communicate the Word of God clearly and help people to understand it. Just as Ezra stood before the people and read the book of the law and gave the sense of the reading, so must a pastor be able to give the understanding of the Word of God. And then sixthly, he must be a teetotaler. Pastors shouldn't drink alcohol. That's not to say that it's okay for anyone else. Uh, Alcohol prevents good judgment. In our day, it has no redeeming qualities. And if you say, well, you know, when you read the Bible, it, it does have some things in there where it says alcohol can be put to good use. Well, if that's your opinion, then we need to take a little bit of time to compare the alcoholic content of what they drank in the Bible times as compared to what we drink now. And what we find out is that the alcohol contents are very, very much different. And when I said we drink now, I'm not, that's not a personal thing. Uh, But we find the alcohol content is very different uh, than what we have today. Even a beer has more alcohol than they drank at that time. Hard liquors were totally out of the question. They were considered to be barbaric. Alcohol has always been a problem. It was then and it is now. Uh, Some people are brutes. And they were capable of making very, very strong drinks back then. I'm not saying that at all. But Christians would never have a part of that. They just would not touch the stuff. And so when Paul wrote to Timothy, who lived among Gentiles, teaching them, they were people that, that abused alcohol. And so Timothy was to teach the church to stay away from it and not to be a, uh, like the sinful culture that they lived in. Then we looked at the word striker in verse number 3. We can put that into the category of gentlemanly. A gentleman is not hot, a hot-tempered, angry man who would strike anyone. Well, we go on then to the next in the list, and this is a very important one because it is such a a terrible snare. And that is the pastor must be munificent. That's your new vocabulary word for tonight. Uh, It's good for you to learn new things. So if you don't know that word, anybody know what munificent means? Don't look it up. Anybody know what munificent means? Okay, munificent means that... 
you're generous. A pastor must be a very generous person. So you can add that word to your vast storehouse of knowledge and use that sometime or another to impress people. But it means that a pastor should not be in love with money, that he doesn't hoard to himself. He doesn't abuse the office of the pastor for personal wealth. And that, friends, is a very important interpretation of this text because we have seen such terrible abuse in leadership uh, for the purposes of personal gain. We haven't seen anything like what goes on in the uh, Christian world today with pastors who seek the office and, and preach things for personal gain. So a pastor needs to be a giver, not always a taker. I remember a sermon that was preached on pastor's qualifications that I heard at the Shepherds Conference. Uh, this was a few years ago. I've heard dozens of sermons uh, over the nine years that I've attended that conference, and rarely, uh, to my dismay, does the speaker preach from the King James Version. MacArthur prefers to use the NASB. Many of the others use the ESV. But in this particular sermon, the preacher read from the NASB until he came to this verse and he said, I really like to retain the old King James translation of this text where it says, filthy lucre. And his point was that filthy lucre has sort of an ominous ring to it. I mean, you can, you can almost feel that. You can feel the nastiness of being greedy. Now, the Bible does have many warnings about the deceitfulness of riches. We would note this from the parable of the sower when Jesus said, And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things entering in choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. What is the last thing that a pastor would ever want to do? Choke the word so that it becomes unfruitful. Those that preach the prosperity gospel today are the worst offenders because they choke the truth of the Word of God. Their love of money ruins the effectiveness of the truth of the gospel, and so a false gospel is preached in order to promote riches. That is filthy lucre. Now, when a person is greedy, it's going to lead him to dishonest ways of gaining more money. Pastors have been known to embezzle from churches. Sometimes pastors have their fingers on the purse strings of the church, on the church bank account, and they treat the church money just like it's their own personal depository. And there are just so many financial shenanigans that go on today, I think it's actually unwise for a pastor to have control of the money of the church. Now, people today seem to be used to this. Uh, you, you have the charismatic groups and so on. They're used to this. They're used to the preacher plundering the offering plate. And when I was a church consultant, I was shocked when I evaluated the financial structure of some churches. I'd never done any personal counseling with uh, churches like the Assemblies of God, but I did have to do some work on uh, financial things and financial applications, and there was not one of them that I saw that didn't have some sort of, of terrible improprieties in the way that they handled finances. But people are used to that, and so they think that all churches are that way, and they're surprised to come to a church like Berean and find out that I am unable to get into the church bank account. Now, heaven knows I've tried and I've tried, but I just can't do it. I'm not that good of a hacker, so I can't get into the church bank account. But I remember preaching a sermon on tithing a few years ago, and I made a comment that I don't know what anyone gives. And I said, I can't even sign a check for the church. 
After the sermon, there was one of the members that came to me and said that she appreciated knowing that because she always thought that the preacher could take the money whenever he wanted. And so his motivation for preaching on giving was to increase his piece of the pie. So she didn't like preaching on giving. So when I said that, she said she was grateful for that. Uh, and they, they do this in many churches. The pastor can just take right out of the offering plate. But we don't do that here. Now, I don't know what you give. I don't see the checks that you give. As pastor, if I wanted, I could get that information. I know plenty that have it. Uh, plenty church uh, pastors of churches do have it. They check the staff members. They check the teachers. They check the deacons to see if they tithe. And if they don't, then they lose their position. Now, that there might be something good to be said for that because all the leadership of the church ought to uh, set an example in giving. We ought to lead by example. Uh, the former pastor of the church had that information. I chose not to. And that's because when I preach on giving, I want to make sure that I'm not targeting anyone. So I don't know what you give. So if you get convicted by a message on giving, that's the Lord's doing, not mine, because I don't know. Now, I, I know that some don't give. I know that some don't give enough. I don't know who you are. There are people who do know, three of them. John knows, and I don't see Richard. Richard, if he was here, he would tell you he knows. And the other person who knows is the Lord. Now, two of those may look at you a little bit differently if you don't give. The third one has the power to take a pound of flesh from you if you don't give. So beware of who knows whether you give or don't give. Now, if you give a lot, I don't know. So you can't expect any favors from me. I don't know. Uh, I remember years ago there was a man who put a $10,000 check into the offering plate. And this was before I became the pastor. Oh, well, I thought that was great. I thought that was really good. And, and I thought that he should be recognized. And so I, I wondered why the pastor didn't say something about that. Somebody put a $10,000 check in the offering plate. But he didn't, say a word. he didn't say a word about it. And so I wondered, and I talked with him. He said, well, why should I? He said, that man never put anything in the offering plate before in all the years that he's been here. $10,000 couldn't touch what he owes the Lord. Well, he knew. I, I choose not to know those things. Now, I thank God for every dollar that we receive, but the more dollars that you give don't gain any favors from me because I don't know. And less dollars that you give is not going to cause me to like you less because I don't know. Now, greediness, that, that's just a terrible lot for a pastor. Uh, most pastors are not going to get rich on the salary. That's been long true since the beginning. Our economy today allows for a little bit better lifestyle for a pastor than it did in Paul's time. It's because people back then were slaves and they didn't have get much money to give. And so as Paul would teach on this, uh, the pastors of the churches would be very much aware of that before they ever got into the, uh, the uh, job of pastoring a church. And so Paul's point would be, if the church pay doesn't satisfy him, then he'll seek dishonest ways to fill his pockets. Paul's advice for all of us is in Philippians 4, 11 and 12, where he says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things... I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul wrote that to the Philippian church because for some reason they had stopped supporting him. 
We don't know why. Later they resumed. But in the lean times, when Paul didn't have funds, he determined that he would be content with what he had. That was satisfying to him. And whatever their reasons, uh, whatever their necessities that they thought that they should stop giving, it leaves no support for anyone to withhold because of selfishness. So Paul taught the church that they ought to give, but when they couldn't give enough, then he was content with what he had. Well, the love of money is a difficult problem for pastors. Pastors are not immune or can be a a problem for them. The flesh is not immune to these things. And so we have warnings to both pastor and people. The love of money causes pastors to scheme, to alter doctrine in order to get their hands on more. And actually, folks, that's how we got this horrific prosperity gospel that's being preached today. The perfect type for this is someone that we talked about this morning in the message. That's Balaam, who was the prophet for hire. Balaam is in the Old Testament. Uh, Balaam was that prophet for hire who was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, uh, to curse Israel. And Balaam is sort of an enigma because at times it seemed like Balaam was God's man. I mean, he resisted Balak on several occasions, and instead of cursing the people of God, he actually blessed them. But then later we learn that Balaam schemed. He schemed his way around cursing uh, God's people directly. And instead, he advised Balak to tempt Israel by getting Moabites to intermarry with Israelites. And when they did, Balaam didn't have to curse them because God chastised them. And there were thousands in Israel that died. Now that incident, it's called the incident of whoredom at Baal Peor. And that's where God sent a plague to kill many of the people of Israel. Later in the New Testament, Balaam stands for the prophet. I mean, he's taken as the example of a prophet who schemes because he's greedy. Now, if you'll turn to 2 Peter for just a moment, we'll take a look at this, and we'll see how that Balaam stands out here in, uh, in, in this scripture as the prophet who is greedy for money. Balaam shows up as the example. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Verse 3, And through covetousness shall they with feign words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Now go down to verse number 14. Having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, listen, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Filthy lucre very well fits the description that we find there in those verses. The love of money, the Bible says, is the root of all kinds of evil. I've known pastors that wouldn't steal the church's money, but they would get involved in shady deals to make more money. And so they would look for opportunities outside of the church where they could get people to trust them because of their position and who they are. 
they could get people to trust them. And so they enticed them with, with uh, get-rich-quick schemes. I know a pastor that got involved in a subprime lending scheme, which is la uh, you know, basically legal usury. We don't need to get money in shady ways. The Bible is right about this. All sorts of evil grow from greed. And so if a preacher loves money, then he'll make the focus of his ministry money rather than the gospel of Christ. And that's when the word is choked and becomes unfruitful. Now you also see a reference at the end of this verse where it says covetousness. Covetousness is a manifestation of greed. It can be jealousy over what other people have. It can be withholding from others what should be given to help them. In other words, a man is robbed of his munificence. He hoards, and by extension, he teaches the church also to hoard. Now, churches need to keep enough money on hand to be prudent about debt, to be able to pay the bills on time. But a church ought not to be accumulating and accumulating and keep on accumulating, trying to build up the bank account. No, the, the reason that we have church funds is for the cause of reaching people with the gospel of Christ. And a pastor that's not generous has a church that's not generous. As the pastor goes, so goes the church. Now, God allows us to make money, and you need to understand this in your personal life, that God allows us to make money to give away money. And then when we give away money, God replenishes our supply. He's always faithful to do that. So munificence, being generous, that has to be the heart of a pastor. Then also in this verse, we see the word brawler, that he's not to be a brawler. That means a contentious person, someone who's not peaceable with others. That also would probably fit up under the category of being a gentleman. Now, th this all seems kind of strange in a way because we saw striker. Now we see brawler, which kind of indicates those people were pretty rough at times. And um, we need to watch out for that, I think. But, but being a brawler, that's not a good, good characteristic of a person who often has to be arbitrator of disputes. You can't be a brawler. So put that under the category of gentlemanly, a person who is at peace with others. Now next, number eight, or letter H on your listening sheet, is household control. What is the primary indicator that a man is in control of his house? Well, that would be the behavior of his wife and the behavior of his children. Those are two different types of behavior, and those are two different types of submission. Now we've already talked about the wife, and how the pastor is to treat his wife. She submits as a godly wife because he treats her as a godly husband should. But what about his children? Well, there's a strong indicator of how he handles his authority when you look at his children. If the children are unruly, if he can't control them, then that would be an indication of the way that he rules the church, that he wouldn't be a disciplinarian. Chaos will reign in the church just as it does in his home. Now, I, I think that this is an interesting requirement because in Paul's day, church people would follow a man into his home to see if children respected and obeyed him. Now, maybe they didn't actually walk into his home with him, but they observed his children. They delved into his home life by watching what his children did. And pastors need to know this. Uh, my advice to young pastors is get used to this one very quickly that our children, the children of pastors, are very, very closely scrutinized. When they do good, it's ignored. 
And when they do bad, that becomes the ammunition for complaints, excuses for others to do worse. And the pastor has to learn that he has accountability for his children. But as I say that, remember, so do you. You also have accountability for your children. Now, for years, we've had a children's service, and uh, that's because we want children to learn on their own level. At least that's what we say that it's for, that we want children to learn on their own level. But I think sometimes we want to have a children's service just because we want to get them on the other side of that wall because they're just too much trouble to be in here. They don't behave as they should. They're unruly and... People can't pay attention. They cause disturbances and everybody is distracted. Why? Because parents don't teach their children at home to behave. And they can't bring them to church and put a halo on their head because it won't fit down over their horns. They can't do that. And so children misbehave and walking into the church doesn't suddenly cure them. Passing through the church doors doesn't help them. Now, when I was young, I remember that we supported a missionary in Brazil, and he had two young little boys, and these two little boys were perfect for Brazil, because I think that they could have cleared five acres of rainforest in about 45 minutes. I mean, these were really, really uh, something else. And so when this missionary came home to report, to give his reports to the churches, that he would bring his wife and his children with him, or I should say he brought his little hellcats with him who were spawns of the devil, and uh, as, as, as... you don't think I'm exaggerating with this, about this, but no, I'm, I'm not exaggerating at all when I say this. These two little boys, I don't know. Um, you've seen the Tasmanian devil? Well, there's two of these. There's two of these. And, and they would come to church, and they were all over the church while he was preaching. The littlest one would come up on the platform while he preached, and he'd run in between his legs and pull on his pant legs. Uh, the whole time that he was preaching. And then when it was over, I knew what was coming next because the preacher always came to our house for dinner. And so he brought, he brought that bring those two little kids. And I'd hate to see them come because they'd be all over the furniture. They'd be running across the tables. Worst of all, they broke my toys. So I didn't want to see them come home with us. Well, there were people in the church that wondered about that. Is this man qualified to be a pastor? Doesn't the Scripture say that he must have control of his house? So what is he teaching the people in Brazil? What's the church learn from him? He doesn't control his house. Now, you, you would have to know that our church was a church that was filled with no-nonsense farmers. Their kids gave them no lip. Their kids milked the cows and fed the hogs. They helped bale the hay, and they would cut tobacco and hang it in the barn Most of you probably don't know anything at all about raising and cutting tobacco, so I'll just tell you a little bit about that. When you cut a stalk of tobacco, the stalk is impaled over a wooden tobacco stick. They put a sharp cone on top of this stick, and then you take the stalk and you press it down over that that stick, and then the the stalk splits the stick, and that's what holds the the, uh, tobacco stalk to the stick. And then you take that and you hang it in the barn. I don't know if any of you have ever seen tobacco hanging in a barn, but I won't explain all of that, but you've got to do that, and you've got to wait for certain humidity and all of that to be just right before you can strip the tobacco from the stalks. But they, they cut the stalk in the field, they impale it over that tobacco stick. Well, I thought about that, and, and I thought, if they ever turned those two little boys loose in the tobacco field, those farmers would impale them on tobacco sticks before it was all over. 
These were just two bad little kids. So I appreciate parents that teach their children to obey, that they come and they sit in church quietly in the church service. And, uh, you know, when I was young, we didn't have a, we didn't have a children's service. Um, and, and I wouldn't mind the kids being in here. I, um, I sat in a regular church service from the time that I was born. I had to learn a few things as I did. My dad called me down from the pulpit once in the middle of the sermon. And it only took one time for him to do that. And I learned my lesson for all time because I repented of that, but he didn't care. And I carefully sought repentance with bitter tears, and he still didn't care. So every evil deed, according to him, requires a just recompense of reward. So uh, I learned to behave in church. I learned to sit quietly. So can your children. We don't have a rule that children must go into the children's service. There's not a rule for that. They can sit here and listen, take notes, and if they're too young, they can occupy. Uh, After services, we come and we pick up all the papers, and we find that a lot of people have been occupying. We find the doodlers, you know, all the papers with the doodles on them. And strangely enough, they don't come from the places where the children are. Uh, Most of it comes from the pews where the adults are. So, you know, squiggly lines and everything. It's unimaginable things that we find. Now, my daughter Clarissa loves to uh, tell the story about what happened to her when she was little. We used to have the whole family in church. Uh, We didn't send them to a children's service. We had the whole family in church. And we sat over here in that area like that uh, at at the front pew, at the front pew. Well, when Clarissa was really, really little, she decided that... uh, during the service, that she was going to have a tea party. And so she took her blanket and took her doll and spread it out in front of that front pew, and she started to have a tea party with her little doll. Well, I was standing up on the platform, and I was watching her. And then after the service, I came down, and I took about four layers of hide off of her. And everybody else thought, well, that is so cute. Well, I didn't think it was cute at all. Uh, She calls it child abuse. Uh, But she didn't think it was cute. But then... If you were to watch her today, she has her children in church, all, let's see, how many of them are there? Um, Six, is that, there are six? I have no idea what their names are, but there are six of them. And uh, they're all quiet. They sit in church and they know that they had better not move because their mom teaches them what they learn from their dad. And she doesn't consider that to be child abuse any longer. Now, let me say also that a pastor can't control his children after they leave home. They go out on their own, and a pastor's not responsible for them anymore. After they leave, there's nothing more than he can do. It's sad when our children don't do what they're supposed to do, but a pastor can't be held accountable for what his children do after they leave the home. If he was responsible for his grown children, we wouldn't have enough pastors to go around. Now, notice another point. He rules his children well, it says. He has children, which means what? Well, it means he's married. You don't want a pastor with children who isn't married, or at least not a widower, you would say. But does this mean he must be married? Well, some say yes, because the passage mentions wife and children. But you remember, we discussed that under a husband of one wife, and we learned that, no, a a man that's going to be a pastor does not have to be married. And if he does have to be married, and, he, and we see it because there's a wife in this passage, then he must also, he must have children, because you find children in the passage too. 
But that's not what the Bible is telling us. It's saying if he has a family, has a wife and children, then he rules his house well. Now, another comment about verse number 5, it says, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? We had a discussion about this, uh, I think, maybe in the Easter sermon. I'm not sure, but we talked about a priori argument. That was from Romans chapter 5. Paul also uses a priori argument in, in this verse. I, a, priori, a priori is argument from self-evident deduction. And in this, this, uh, in this case, the argument is from the lesser to the greater. If a man cannot control his house, that's the lesser, then how can he control the church of God? That is the greater. A man's house is less important than the church of God. And so if he can't have control in his house where he's there every day, where he has a close relationship with his children, if he can't do that, then how is he going to do the greater? How will he control the church of God with all of its people with differences of opinion, highly opinionated people, and always wanting to do their own thing? How is he going to rule them if he can't rule his own house? That's the lesser to the greater. You can't do the lesser, you can't do the greater. Number nine in our list. This is I experienced, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. He cannot be a novice. Obviously, that doesn't mean that he needs to have prior pastoral experience. That's because every pastor has to start somewhere. A pastor doesn't have pastoral experience when he starts. So uh, it's not talking about that. What it means that a novice means that he can't be a new Christian. You wouldn't choose somebody to be the pastor of the church who's just been saved for a very short time. You can't have somebody that's new to the faith. He needs to have time in the faith so that he becomes experienced in the Christian life. There needs to be enough time that he's endured the storms of the faith. He needs to be able to show his ability to hold out, to overcome adversity, to fight off temptation as it comes, to fight against the wiles of the devil. There are many dangers that assail, assail a novice. Pastoring is hard work, and it's demanding. At many times, it's very discouraging. So a pastor needs to know how to deal with all of these things so that he becomes thick-skinned, not easily torn apart, but then at the same time, not cynical about the unappreciative, unappreciative people that he has to deal with. Now, the warning in this case is against pride. A man can have power and prestige in the office, and in many churches he experiences the adulation of the people. And so when things go well, he can be lifted with pride. Many times his sermons stink, and still there are people who say, that was a very good sermon. And then when you start to believe your own press about those things, then you start trusting yourself instead of God. A pastor has to maintain humility. And I, and I despise the pride that I see in some pastors. They have their groupies. They have their entourage that follows them around. They're busy autographing Bibles. And I always thought, why is the pastor autographed Bibles? He didn't write it. Why is he autographing it? Some of them teach their people to stand and applaud when they enter. And if they don't teach themselves, they teach their surrogates to do it. They want hail to the chief plate every time that they enter the auditorium. Two years ago at the Shepherds Conference, and maybe you get tired of hearing about Shepherds Conference, but that's really my oasis 
Uh, that's the place where I hear preaching as I think that it should be. But a couple of years ago, uh, Ian Murray spoke, and maybe most of you probably never heard of him, but Ian Murray is a pretty big guy, actually, very prim and proper Scotsman, who is a biographer of Charles Spurgeon, also of Jonathan Edwards. Just lately, he wrote a biography of J.C. Ryle. He was an assistant to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which by many is considered probably to be the greatest preacher, expository preacher, uh, from the 1950s on. So this, he got up to speak, Ian Murray got up to speak, and with his credentials, he deserved to be applauded far more than preachers that I know. But he was very clear about this when he got up to preach, that he was upset that sometimes the preacher was applauded when he got into the pulpit, when he entered the impulse, uh, pulpit. And he was very stern about that, and he was very serious about it. And he said, I don't think that it's appropriate for people to applaud the pastor when he comes into the auditorium and when he comes to speak. And as soon as he got those words out, there were 3,500 men that started applauding him. And, and I, he was flustered by that. And I, and I thought for a moment he was going to have to sit down and gather himself before he could go on. But uh, uh, preachers need to leave their pride at home. Let the kids applaud them when they come home. And he rules as a house well. Let them give him a hand. Now notice the issue that pride causes the man to fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's a very serious warning. Perhaps it can be interpreted in two ways. Maybe the Scripture actually means both of these. Both are intended. He may be turned over to Satan, who can make sport of him and further ruin him by playing on his pride. Or it could mean that he'll suffer the same punishment as the devil. Remember that Satan rode the crest of pride in heaven, that he had power and position, he was the most powerful of all the angels, the most beautiful of all the angels. And then being lifted up in pride, he soon thought that he was so holy and he was so caught up with himself that he thought that he could eclipse God's glory. And that's when God brought him low. He was cast down and he fell and now he awaits final judgment. That is a fair warning for prideful preachers. If they want God's glory, God's not willing to surrender it. This is... God's church, not the pastor's. And we serve at the pleasure of the Lord of the church, and we are not the Lord of the church. So you don't put a novice into the position. Satan easily plucks them. They don't have the spiritual strength to fight him. And so this person who becomes a pastor must be one who is proved. And these qualifications point towards a seasoned man, towards one who has proved himself. Now we're getting just a little bit late. But we can finish these verses with one more point, so we'll do it. The last one is that he must be reputable. Verse number 7, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So this is a man that has a good reputation. A reputation is built because he has good Christian experience, because he's not a novice. He's known by his reputation. If he's, a, if he's a scoundrel, then you don't choose him. Now, this, is, this is interesting, too, that he must have a good reputation among those that are outside of the church. He's going to be involved in converting them. He's the face of the church in the community. So what do they think of that man as a person? Now, they may totally disagree with all of his doctrine, and many times people do. But what do they think of the man as a person? 
Is he honest? Has he given them some kind of occasion where they could find fault in him and accuse him? Or have they tried, but they've never been able to? And the only way they can find something bad is to have somebody lie against him, to have a false witness. You know, the Bible tells us that they hated Christ without a cause. Uh, they didn't like his doctrine, but they had no cause against him in his personal character. On a personal level, they couldn't fault him. He, he never lied. He never cheated. He never stole, never slandered anyone. He never gossiped. He was always respectful. Unlike them, he also supported the government when they thought that you shouldn't do it. He did that at the appropriate times. So they could never make a charge against Christ's stick. So what did they do? Well, they just hired false witnesses because there was no guile in him. Well, a pastor represents Christ. And the same has to be true of him. He can't have a bad reputation. If he has a bad reputation and the church decides, well, we're going to take him anyway. There are things that we like about him. We're going to take him anyway. And we know he's got these faults, these obvious things. Uh, but we'll take him anyway. Well, the church is going to eventually have to overcome those faults to be effective in the ministry. Sometimes they can't do it. And so it's best you don't start out behind the eight ball. You don't choose somebody who doesn't have a good reputation. For instance, I've known pastors that don't pay their bills. And then I've known churches that don't pay their bills. You know which ones? The ones where the pastor doesn't pay his bills. The church takes on the character of the pastor. And so if... Uh, if a man can be tempted, if he falls prey to temptation, then Satan will keep hitting him with bigger and bigger temptations, more compelling temptations, and it's just not going to work. So the reputation must be good. All the qualifications must be there because this is a job that's too important. It's too big. There's too much responsibility. There's too much accountability. You can't get this wrong. And so a pastor must be right, or there's a very good chance that the church won't be. So that's a look at the qualifications. It takes a, a different man to meet all of these. As best as we can, all of us need to try and meet these qualifications. And we might even have some men in the church who, who we could honestly say. They could just check off all of these qualifications. That got that, got that, got that. But you know that's still not enough. You can have all the qualifications, but you need one more thing. And that is you must be called of God to pastor the church. And so that's the man that the church chooses, the one who has the qualifications and has the call of God on his life. The church chooses the man that God calls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, we, we look at this passage of Scripture and it's uh, demanding, very difficult for us uh, as far as not in understanding, but in trying to meet all of these qualifications in the way that uh, you say they should be. And we know, Lord, we fall short in many areas, but uh, we need men who are willing to uh, acknowledge their faults, pray about those, remain to be a good testimony in front of others, and do our best to serve you as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and honor you in all of our ways. Lord, we pray that would be true of every member of the church, men and women alike, that our lives would be holy, that we would honor you in all things. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to teach your people tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 
or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.